Welcome to show 73 of the C-Suite podcast. We're back at the World Travel Market for the second year running here at Excel, and uh, we're catching up with a few of the exhibitors here to get a flavour of what's being discussed at the event. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and to kick this episode off, I've come to the UK inbound stand, the very busy uh, UK inbound stand, um, where I'm joined by their chairman, Mark McVeigh. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, now, um, perhaps for those listeners not aware, do you want to just give a quick introduction to UK inbound? Yeah, UK Inbound is a trade association dealing primarily, well, exclusively with inbound tourism. We've got 400 members and we look after their interests, trying to get trading conditions that um, help them sort of develop their businesses. So part of our work is our advocacy, but also part of it is bringing the, uh, the various members together because we've got tour operators, we've got attractions, uh, we've got service providers, marketing, transportation, um, as well as destination management companies. So all of those come together for great B2B experiences. Yeah. And you must have almost all of them here today because it's well, so busy. How, yeah, how, are you, no. how, are you the, how are you finding the show? No, this, show, this show's great. We've, um, we've increased the stand by 20% this year. Right. So we've got a total of 60 of our partners on Brilliant. the stand. Um, and in fact, we could have gone bigger because we had m- members waiting from, on the waiting list. Yeah, tremendous. Okay, um, now there are a few things I wanted to chat to you about. I thought we could start with your latest uh, business barometer. Um, now that, having looked at uh, some of the numbers on that, it, it, it showed a, a surge in growth from the Chinese market. Um, can you share some of the top line findings of the report? Yeah, the, 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 the barometer is something that we do every two months uh, where we go to our members and ask them to just give us feedback on the, the current trading conditions. And one of the things that came out this time was that there was a real growth in the, the Chinese market. Um, and it's actually growing at a faster rate than the, the North American market. But the North American market is a very established market anyway, so it's not surprising that a growing market is actually growing at a faster yeah, rate. Yeah, of course. Um, and while it's encouraging that we are getting around about 530,000 visitors to the UK now from China, um, it's a very small percentage of the, the number of Chinese visitors that are going to mainland Europe and to the Schengen uh, area, and they're getting two and a half million. Uh, wow. So there is a huge disparity, and there's still a lot of work to do, yeah. but it shows you that there is a huge growth still to be made within that market. Great. And what about stats in general in terms of visitor numbers to the UK? Have you, have you got any numbers well, that you Well, for last share? year was a record year. We had um, 39 million uh, visitors, and they spent um, £24.5 billion, pounds, um, which is a huge um, amount for uh, the, the, the income for this country, because all of that is export, um, essentially, mm. and uh, with the, the incoming um, currencies. And um, it puts inbound tourism as about the fourth, about the fifth or the sixth uh, largest export company uh, organization. Right. Okay. Um, one of the campaigns you recently launched, um, and I was quite in- interested about this because we've actually covered this topic on the podcast uh, previously on, on different shows. It was all, it was all around the UK's language skills, um, or I should more appropriately say the lack of them. Yeah. Um, c- can you tell us a little bit about what's behind the launch and, and where you're currently, you know, at with that? Well, I think the the whole thing stems from. Um, Brexit. Um, a lot of our tour operators in particular rely on European nationals to be able to provide language skills within, their, um, within the, the markets that they work in. Um, with the inbound market, they are having to speak in Spanish and French and all a range of different languages, German. Um, and we found that because of Brexit, an awful lot of those people were actually going back to their their home countries. I think around about 130,000 EU nationals have gone back from the UK in the the last sort of 18 months. And it was just showing that there was um, a huge lack of language skills. And you know, I think the the Brits are essentially quite lazy when it comes to languages. When they go abroad, they really expect people to be able to speak English to them. I know I'm one of them because I don't have any language skills whatsoever. Um, and so we commissioned um, Christchurch um, University in Canterbury 
to uh, carry out a survey for us just to look at um, what language training uh, teaching there was both in the schools and universities and particularly those universities that were doing a tourism or hospitality course and basically it was non-existent um, and it was really quite horrifying to see. Now we presented that at the uh, uh, launch at the House of Commons um, in the summer and the minister did ex um, accept there were problems, but also he said that they recognised those problems and they were in fact going to be investing in uh, language training at all levels from right. schools and universities. And they've set themselves fairly ambitious targets. Hopefully they're saying that by um, 2023, something like 70% of students will be taking languages, but We've just got to wait and see whether that actually... Say, but th there's a need now, though. That's the but issue, there, isn't there it? is a need now, yeah. and that's what we are uh, keeping on banging the drum, particularly yeah. about the whole migration issue and the high and low skills that they're talking about and the benchmark actually being the salary that they're being paid, which is 30000 Now, 30000 is a reasonable salary, um, but it's not... Uh, it's not I think anybody earning less than that, or certainly between 20 and 30, is not classified as being in the low pay zone. Um, so I think that we've, we're trying to get the government to sort of buy into sort of widening that, um, that skill gap um, so that we are able to still bring people from Europe in the short term anyway yeah. to be able to provide their services. Otherwise, some of our tour operators might find themselves moving their offices overseas yeah. to, to be able to get those skills that they require. Well, you, you queued me up nicely for my final question because I wanted to ask you about the impact that, that Brexit was having um, on your members. So the language you know, skills issue aside, yeah. you know, it will be good to know what's happening at the moment and also moving forward based on you know depending on what deal is agreed or, or perhaps even no deal you know is, is a potential as well well this is the big thing isn't it we are all waiting to find out what is actually going to happen yeah. um, as far as UK and Bank concern it is access and it's the border controls and that welcome that visitors get when they arrive um, now, in the, the budget, the Chancellor did um, talk about widening the, the, the range of countries that are going to be able to use the e-passport gates, which is a great thing, and providing that's still open to the European countries as well, that's also going to be very good uh, going forward. But it is that welcome, it is the access to the countries, and obviously the employment and the language skills there are the key sort of issues that right. we're looking for. Okay. If listeners want to find out more about, you know, some of the things that we've been discussing, where's the best place for them well, to Well, the best go? place is to go to our website and it's www.ukmbound.org. Fantastic. Uh, Mark McVeigh, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you. So we've uh, made our way over to the SDL stand where I'm now joined by Dr. Kevin Ashbridge, uh, VP for Global Travel and Leisure Solutions at SDL. Uh, Kevin is currently developing AI-led solutions for the transportation, leisure and hospitality sectors. And he presented earlier today at the event in a Travel Forward Product Showcase Theatre on the topic of the day your content doesn't need you anymore. Uh, this is not another warning that we're all going to be replaced by machines, is it, Kevin? It is actually a warning you're going to be replaced <laughs> oh, by machines. Uh, well, I should say you should really be thinking about as a travel business handing over certain parts of your content chain to machines right so if you really step back and look at the type of content that travel creates it really falls into two main camps information like hotel room descriptions uh, rental car specifications that sort of thing information or inspirational content, which is the glossy brochure stuff, you know, that sort of thing. Right now, um, technology is really catching up in the area of creating information. It's something that a lot of people spend a lot of money um, creating hundreds of thousands of hotel descriptions, for example, in multiple languages, uh, and that's a very, very costly exercise. My point today at uh, presenting here at Travel Forward is to say, this type of content can be done today by machines. It does an equally good job, and uh, cost-wise, it's pennies in the dollar. So in the presentation, you talked about 
the five future states of content. Um, I thought it'd be great if you can just share some of what you discussed for our, for our listeners. Sure, uh, five future states of content is uh, it's conceptually putting stakes in the ground for a business as to how their content will operate in the near future. The five principles are that using machine learning, artificial intelligence, content will be able to create itself. It will be eminently agile in that creation. It will be responding to external input. Third is that it will become searchable by machines, and there's quite a bit of technology behind that. Fourth, and I think this is a topic of the moment, it will be secure in the way that it creates itself. And finally, content using all of these previous future states will become your best salesperson. So that's the five future states, but if I break them down a bit more with some examples. Yes. Yeah? So content that creates itself, well, what does that mean? As I uh, alluded to, we're in a position now where for certain content types, such as inventory descriptions, it is quite possible for a machine to write a hotel description from its component parts. For example, if you've got in your hotel, you've got uh, concierge service, uh, minibars, free Wi-Fi service, all of those facilities and facts about a hotel. A machine can quite simply, quite straightforwardly, I should say, combine those facts to create a human language sentence. And that's what really what today the big guys do, Expedia, Booking.com, TripAdvisor, they are all in this business of creating inventory content in as automated a way as possible. We're now going to move from a typical technology for doing this, which is using templates, into using neural machines, neural-based artificial intelligence. And the difference here is that the, the, you're asking the machine ultimately to create a piece of content in a way that resonates with an individual consumer. And you require the smartness, the intelligence of deep learning in order to deliver something that resonates in that way. If you use a template, you're really just delivering the same content over and over again. If something changes, that changes the template, but there's no change in the tone of voice, the emphasis in a particular way that it stacks. Well, certain. that's what I was going to ask, because if every hotel's got Wi-Fi and every hotel's got concierge, will it, will it just not everything become vanilla bland? Where, where's, where does the personality come in? Sorry, I can't Yeah, that. that's a good question. It actually becomes in the combination of the information and the inspiration. Okay. So no one ever looks at a hotel description alone and makes a decision based on that. They'll look at the images, videos maybe, yeah. social proof, that sort of thing. But those are all sort of key factors, if you like, in understanding ultimately what the consumer is trying to buy and then using the machine to create the textual description that supports that purchase. For example, uh, an easy one to think of is whether I go to a hotel for a business trip or a pleasure trip, a leisure trip. If I am going on business, I'm looking for certain criteria from that hotel. Let's say fast Wi-Fi, maybe a business center, concierge to suggest things in the area uh, to take my business clients to. If I'm going for, um, for pleasure, let's say with my family, then I'm after things more like, um, is there daily maid service in the room? You know, it's, it, it, I'm also after Wi-Fi for the iPad. Uh, but I might also be after more things like, um, do they serve children's food at the restaurant? You know, it's something yeah. a business traveler would never ask. So when you take the totality of the search for a hotel and deliver the results of that search, you're really trying to create a piece that properly describes this hotel to that particular individual. You know? That person going on business or pleasure may be the same person let's say a woman who's going first on business and then secondly taking her family to the same hotel in the same city. See what I mean? It, it, it's trying to attack and ultimately deliver a relevant piece of content based on why they're going, not what they're searching for necessarily, but if the hotel can deliver that um, in the context of a wider inspiration or is it old worldy charm or modern chrome and glass type of things you get from the photographs, 
then you're really into a winner here because the description is matching the request, which is matching the expectation of the consumer. Right. If you tried to do this using traditional methods, it would be impossible. You may, if you had all the money in the world, uh, might be able to cope with business versus um, leisure travel. But could you also cope with um, food and wine tour experiences, uh, shopping experiences that are outside the hotel? Could you also cope with teens versus a young family? What they want versus you know, what toddlers would, be, would need? It, it's just impossible to even imagine traditional processes doing that. And this is where the machines step in. Not only can they just do a task like create a description, but they can combine, they can create that description in multiple ways. And this is what the first, um, this is what the, the first state, future state of content is about, is creating that same description in multiple variations to ultimately deliver a relevant experience to the customer. And can you go into some more detail on, on some of the other aspects that, that you talked about? There was, you know, you were talking about sort of agile and security mm. as well. Yeah, agile is an interesting one. Most um, larger travel businesses today have three departments. There's the content department, there's the translation department, and then there's a sort of web delivery department, for want of a better word, or mm. IT. And those um, three departments are really working to different KPIs, to their own agendas, they have their own bosses. You know, <laughs> Ultimately, they should all be serving the same customers, but they're all really doing it in a different way way with, with different emphases on where they apply value to, to the end uh, uh, content delivery. If you step back and put content at the heart of the process, not the sil business silos at the heart of that process, you start to enter a world where the whole business becomes more agile. If you've got a machine, and again using machine learning, artificial intelligence, that not only creates the content in the first place, in the ways that we've been talking about, but also translates it immediately and then decides the delivery platform or mechanism uh, for that content, all as part of the one process. You're really onto something where businesses can respond in real time to a consumer. If, if I illustrate that by saying, let's suppose that I'm after a, a, a nice wine tour in London and I'm coming from Spain. Yeah. So, First thing is, clearly I need a description of how this hotel fits into the wine tour that I'm going to do around London. Not a great place, but there we are. Uh, it does it in my language, but then what device am I looking at? Am I on a laptop before I go? And then when I'm in London, I'm on a, a, my mobile device, and maybe when I'm on the tube traveling about, I want you know the directions of where the next thing is. My point is that it's the same content ultimately, but it has to be sliced and diced and delivered and recombined and retranslated and put through you know these various endpoints. You can't do that with a huge siloed operation. It all has to center around the content itself, and then using the automation inherent in this to to deliver it. And are we just on that translation bit? Is are we talking about machine translation or? Oh yes. Yeah right. Yeah. Yes, a bit like the content creation part. Yeah. Um, most businesses are not really um, geared up to work with translation in real time. The real time aspect is incredibly important, um, and I'll just touch on that. Yeah, sure. The, if you take uh, the voice activated assistants like Amazon Alexa, for example, and you ask a question, and you ask it in Spanish, for want of a better word, you're expecting obviously the answer to be in Spanish, yeah. but it's, it's the Spanish version of whatever content is supposed to be coming back to you. You can't take the question, have a copywriter quickly type something off, send it off yeah, to of a translator. You see the word to me. It, the real-time aspect is incredibly important uh, to, to hold that conversation in the first place. So you can only start with machines, but then you know, machine translation has typically had a pretty poor reputation in the past of, exactly, of, yeah. of doing a good job for many languages, and, and rightly so. But again, we're moving out of that phase into really quite a revolution in translation using these neural networks, this deep learning artificial intelligence. Because whereas in the past you used to translate one word into another, or one phrase into another, what Neural does now with its deep learning is it translates the meaning of 
the phrase in the source language into the exact meaning in the target language. Those words may be completely different, but it's the meaning that's maintained. And it's this, this ability to translate meaning that is the revolution. And, and it's, this, it's this ability to understand, quote unquote, that's kind of at the heart of all of these uh, future state principles. It's not just taking in a bunch of words, chopping them up and putting them into you know, different combinations. It's doing that with an understanding of relationships, meaning, context, and ultimately, the relevant experience that the consumer is after. So what, what was the feedback when, when you gave your presentation? Because, I, I mean, the travel industry is quite at the forefront of technology and, and yes. innovation, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it, very much so. In fact, some of the very first transactional websites ever were travel ones, like an early version of Expedia. The travel industry was uh, some of the first apps from the smartphones yeah, were travel apps. You know, so the, the travel has always really embraced this sort of new digital age. And it, it does so, I think, because it's trying to be wherever the consumer is or will soon be, you know. Um, it's very much a consumer-driven industry, ultimately, of course. So if a consumer is now talking to Amazon Alexa or to their smartphone or to their wallpaper, you know, uh, whatever it is in the future, travel loves to be there. And it's, it's only going to be able to service these individuals you specifically talk into your wallpaper by having these real-time neural network driven processes behind them yeah. and has to be done securely yeah. too. You know? So Kevin I'm sure there's loads more that, that we could talk about on this but um, if our listeners want to find out more information about this whole topic what, where's the best place for them to go? Oh by far sdl.com go there uh, you can go sdl.com slash travel we'll get you straight to the travel part but we cater for a huge number of industries where we're applying this technology. So, sdl.com. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Kevin Ashbridge, uh, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. So we've moved to the exhibition stand of the Jamaica Tourist Board, where I am joined by the Honourable Edmund Bartlett, the Minister of Tourism here. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, I wanted to ask uh, some information, or, or, or just if uh, we can talk about the news that you're sharing about the Global Tourism uh, Resilience and Crisis Management Centre, uh, which is based at the University of the West Indies in Montego Bay, Jamaica. Um, can you tell us some of your aims for the centre? Well, the centre has uh, been developed in response to the high level of vulnerability of uh, many tourism dependent economies of the world and the reality that global shocks uh, both indigenous and exogenous shocks are going to be a reality with us mm. and the capacity of countries to deal with it vary in terms of the resource that they have available as well as the knowledge base from which they, they come. Uh, and tourism, which is uh, today the largest industry in the world and has 10% uh, of world GDP, um, employ one in 10 of all the workers of the world, uh, with $800 billion of foreign direct investment last year. To think that this industry had 1.2 billion people traveling across borders and they spend 1.3 trillion dollars in the process. Now 79 countries of the world have tourism dependence of 10% and more a GDP and we in the Caribbean in particular we have a high level of dependence we are over 40% dependent uh, on tourism. So what we need to do is to recognize that this powerhouse of tourism also has vulnerabilities because it is uh, susceptible to all sorts of shocks. Mm. Uh, in the last 50 years, tourism grew every year, unlike all other industries, except for three periods. One was when you had SARS. Remember that pandemic? And that disrupted growth. Then the next period was 9-11, when we had a terrorist attack yeah. in New York. And that disrupted gro growth as airlines were flying all over the place empty. And thirdly, the great economic recession that we had in the mid-80s, um, the mid part of the uh, first decade um, mm. of the 80s, and that resulted in uh, numerous economic disruptions 
across Europe and, um, and the Americas and in fact all over the world. So those were the only three periods. So what it says is that tourism's growth is affected by mega shocks. Mm. Now, to add to that, climatic conditions, which are now a big preoccupation. Hurricanes are getting more intensive. They are destroying communities. Earthquakes are happening with more frequency. They're destroying uh, communities. Um, and then there are man-made disruptions such as terrorism, as I mentioned earlier. But now cyber crimes, which is a huge uh, disruption. Not only uh, is it uh, stealing people's identity and hacking into their accounts all over the world, but it also is creating you know, uh, space in the cognitive systems that is going to be displacing a whole lot of human beings in terms of uh, jobs and, and arrangements. So that's going to create a level of disruption as well. And then you have political disruptions that we are well aware of. Yes. And of course, there's uh, financial disruptions that we are all too familiar with. Now, all of these disruptions um, are, are key uh, factors that are going to determine the level of peace and stability in the world. But more importantly, it is going to develop, determine whether or not certain countries can even exist. We have to build then capacity across the globe to be able to respond to these disruptions. First, we need to identify them, know when they are approaching you, and um, then to build uh, mitigation against them, then manage the ability to manage them when they actually hit you, and finally to recover, and recover, recover well, and uh, to the point of resilience to build better, so that whatever comes afterwards you'll be able to withstand. Sure. So it is in that context that the center was born. The need for a single repository uh, from which we can have satellite uh, institutions all over the world that is focusing on building data, building information, providing opportunities for technical support and best practices, as well as to provide communication arrangements to enable people to know and to see and to hear about what is happening so that they can take evasive action and move quickly and save lives. So the center will be established in Jamaica and officially launched on 31st of January 2019. Already we have a number of partners um, that are involved with us. Uh, on Sunday of this week we had a first board meeting here in London that um, brought together leaders from all over the world as partners, including World Travel and Tourism Council, the United Nations World Tourism Organization, um, the Pacific Area Tourism Authority, PATA. Um, we had also a representative from the International Crisis Group, which is a huge um, group responding to political crises all over the world. Uh, in addition, regional groups such as um, the Mediterranean Tourism Forum, which is looking at uh, uh, issues relating to uh, sustainability and development within the Mediterranean area uh, specifically, but also um, in Africa and parts of Europe. Then we had the International Tourism Investment Conference that comes out of Mauritius, um, and they are more of a think tank looking at uh, how to build capacity for investment in tourism as opposed to tourism investment. So investment in tourism is about building human capital, is, is enabling people to be able to benefit more from tourism at a community level rather than the traditional block and steel and the mega hotels and so on that are common to tourism investment. So it is that kind of coalition of interests that are coming together. The um, Natural Geographic through IBM's arrangements with the um, uh, Weather Channel is a part of it. And then we have a number of universities, about six universities that are partnering. So what is coming together, there's a confluence of academia, 
of technical knowledge, of uh, technology, of communication mm -hmm. skills, uh, to all bring a force that will be able to offer support and assistance to countries. Incredible amount of, of work that you've uh, got planned and, and, and going to be doing. On, on top of that, you've also launched this global uh, tourism crisis barometer. Yes, we're coming to that because there are four primary outcomes from the board meeting yeah. uh, on Sunday. The first is for us to establish a journal, okay. which would be an academic compendium by published um, lecturers and academics on various matters to do with crisis management, mm. resilience, and uh, the impact on countries. Second is to uh, uh, create a toolkit, uh, which again is a compendium of best practices and, and guides and tidbits to countries as to how to build out their own capacity to right. uh, withstand these disruptions. And the third is the barometer. Okay. And the barometer, we think, is a game changer because here we are trying to measure resilience and to determine uh, where countries fall on what we call the resilience indices. Uh, and that is in line with how the world has been uh, developing mechanisms for measurement in terms of competitiveness, for example, the business world, the World Economic Forum has that. And so what we're saying is that uh, a resilience measure will help communities to decide on many things. It will help markets to decide and tourists, individuals to decide where to go, when to go. Uh, it will help investors to determine where to invest and how to invest. It will also um, inform capital market on risk and, and other kinds of arrangements and where do they put uh, their money. But it will also enable countries that are in need of support to build resilience to have a platform and to have a response that they can give to um, donor agencies and multilateral partners and to, 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 to support their call for greater um, assistance. Yeah. So, so we, we feel that this is a very strong and powerful um, development which is going to be a true game changer and will assist countries greatly in being able to access benefits where they are due. Do you, do you expect every tourist destination to sign up immediately or is this going to take time? I think it will take time yeah. because, you know, new things, first of all, you have to build credibility in all of this. You also have to uh, be uh, empirical and, and, and come up with, um, with, with measures that are acceptable. Uh, what parameters are you using? How are you going to determine? you know, the level of, let's say, uh, how you could, for example, measure the strength and tensility of, of buildings, mm -hmm. their the ability to withstand hurricanes and winds, uh, the kind of um, furnishings that are used in building the houses and the buildings, um, the health facilities and the level of security that is there against um, diseases and so on. So it's a whole range of indicators that you will have to look at. And these indicators, no doubt, will have to be measured yeah. um, and be um, given validity through um, other external entities. So it will take a little time, but what we want to do is to seed the idea more than anything else. Because once you do that, then um, a lot of skills and knowledge and, and expertise are out there. So when, when do you think we'll, we'll start to see this resilience kite mark then appearing on, on like all the communications that go out from various different Well, I think that once we get it going and the, the parameters are, the, 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 the parameters rather yeah. are established, um, the technology is there. Yeah. And it's about big data being used to do a number of things. Yes. And then you have partners like Samsung and IBM and Google and so on that we can bring in to assist in uh, uh, mining the data and doing the analytic work that will allow us to establish these benchmarks. Fantastic. Um, if listeners want to find out any more information about all, all the work that you're doing at the centre, where's the best place for them to The best to do place, it? of course, is to um, the University of the West Indies in Jamaica. And um, we are on, there's a website, you know, that you can go to. Um, and also the Jamaica Tourist Board, uh, our website, uh, or the Ministry of Tourism in Jamaica, our website. I think it's the safest way to say it, go to the website. <laughs> That's tremendous. Thank you so much. Yes. I know it's been a busy day. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you so much. We are delighted that uh, you could join us at our stand today. And um, welcome 
to Jamaica, the little piece of us that is here at WTM. Fantastic. And I hope I see you in Jamaica, the real big Jamaica. That would be yeah. very nice. Wonderful. Okay, <laughs> thank you. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So joining me now is uh, Richard Freeman, Chief Executive of the Good Hotel Guide. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, um, you recently launched your 2019 guide. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you put it together and what we can expect to find in it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so let me just say from the start, you know, uh, that, that hotels generally can only get into the guide. It's based on merit alone. So you don't pay to be in our guide. We select you to be in that print guide based on merit alone. So, so putting together this guide, we have an army of reviewers all around the country. Uh, we receive literally thousands of reviews every year. And uh, the process basically is that we, that we collect all of those reviews. We, we read through them. Uh, we edit the ones that we feel are, are, are perhaps not as powerful as the ones that, uh, that are. You know, often we sort our database into uh, people that have given us reviews before, people who are sending us reviews for the first time. That's how we can sort of feel very confident about the reviews that we get. And uh, we pull them all together. We send a questionnaire out to uh, all of our hotels uh, in early January. We uh, ask them for their opinions uh, of what's happening at the hotel and what's going on. And then we collate all of that information together. We rewrite uh, every uh, review uh, that is in the guide. And it's, uh, we, the result is an expert curated review of each of the hotels. And there are 860 that are in the Good Hotel Guide, and, and that happens uh, in October, which is the launch uh, of our annual guide. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask you, actually, was how you have adapted the business over the, over the years, really to take account of the increasing popularity of all, of all these review you know, websites that are around, because obviously yeah. you mentioned at the start that it's printed. So that's a, that's a great question, right? So, so, I mean, roll the clock back 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, we, were, we really were an exclusively print-driven organization. We just sold books, and we used to sell in excess of 30 or 35,000 books, and that, was the, that really was the, the revenue model for the guide. Um, but over time, published travel guides have declined in sale, and about uh, 10 years ago, we decided that we needed to, to put the content onto the Internet, uh, and we launched goodhotelguide.com, and we shifted our model. So now, of course, we still have our fierce independence, Hotels can only be in the guide based on merit alone. But if you want to have a full entry, if you want your hotel to be fully reflected on our website, you pay us an annual subscription fee. And that's really the lion's share of, of revenues of the company now is, is from uh, the annual subscription fee. But as I said, you cannot, pay to be in the, so you cannot pay to be in the good hotel guide. So you see yourself offering something different, though, to those, those review sites, I, I take it? Yeah, we do. I mean, so, so you who look at us versus, uh, say, a TripAdvisor, for example, which really just puts up all of its reviews without really editing them or thinking about what people are saying. It's open to collusion. Uh, we will not put up a review on our site until it has been read by our editors and reviewed. And then, of course, we put our one single expert curated review up in the print guide on the website. And so we're very different. We're curated. We're, we're that expert review. And, and, and the way I think about it is that um, compared to TripAdvisor, TripAdvisor is necessary, uh, but it's not sufficient. And so if you're thinking about going to stay at a lovely hotel, you know, you might of course use TripAdvisor, but you may want a strong second opinion, or maybe the Good Hotel Guide's where you come to first, and then after you've read our expert curated review, maybe you'll go to TripAdvisor then. So we are a supplementary source, possibly an originating source, and so you think about that and, and, and what we've done on our website, we really are we're doing very well. We've invested heavily in, in, in making sure that people who are searching online for great hotels in the UK and Ireland, whether it be a country house hotel in the New Forest or whether it be a seaside hotel in Cornwall. Uh, and we are there now on page one of Google answering those queries and, and, and showing the hotels that are, that are coming up there. So talking of great hotels, um, at your uh, 2019 uh, launch, you 
handed out 10 uh, César Awards uh, for hoteliers showing excellence in their field. Um, can you share some of the highlights from that? Yeah, we did. That's right. And, and so, so, so the Césars are named after César Ritz, who was the founder of the Ritz Hotel. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we, we really uh, pride ourselves on our selection of, of, of what I would call independent, owner-operated, characterful hotels. So that's really the essence of the guide. Uh, and so, uh, in our Cesars this year, you know, we have, uh, we, as, you, as, you, as you said, uh, said rightly, we, we have ten. But, uh, I mean, here, here's a sort of a, a quick selection. I picked out four, one from, from each of Scotland, England, Wales, and Ireland. Uh, our luxury hotel of the year, for example, was Kinloch Lodge, which is in Sleet on the Isle of Skye. And uh, it's Lord and Lady Macdonald's former hunting lodge on the Isle of Skye. It has glorious loft views from bedrooms, which are filled with antiques and ancestral portraits. The chef, Marcello Tully, created a delectable menu showcasing the best of local ingredients. And a ghillie, which is a, a Scottish guide, organises fishing, foraging and wild walks. Uh, we also gave to an English hotel seaside of the year to, to the Nair, which is privately owned by the same family for three decades. Uh, it provides you know perfect mix of family friendliness and luxury through the elegant rooms. Where was, has, that, where was that one? That, that's in Cornwall, sorry. Right. Varian in Roseland in Cornwall. Uh, it's a beautiful hotel. It has two restaurants, subtropical gardens with outdoor pool. Uh, and, and it looks over Carn Beach, which is just just heavenly. We also gave uh, an award to uh, our Welsh, our favourite Welsh restaurants with rooms. Um, we've had a lot of interest in restaurants with rooms uh, across the website. So what's that like a one, you know, stay over for one night? Yeah, you know, it's great because you can have a wonderful meal, and then you don't have to worry about drinking. Spend the night, and, and you come back the following morning. And there's a just it's, it's a trend, I would say, restaurants yeah. with rooms. So tell us about the winner. For uh, that so restaurants, restaurant James Somerin, which is in Penarth in Wales, uh, we gave the award to that one. Uh, it has amazing uh, sea views, contemporary design. Uh, it has acclaimed Michelin-starred cooking, uh, and and Louise and James Somerin's family-run enterprise uh, on the Seven Estuary is really wonderful. You can dine on crab, lobster smoke venison and stay in one of their nine bedrooms, five of which have, have those great sea views. Uh, and la the last one I wanted to pick out, but obviously definitely not least, uh, was our Irish Hotel of the Year, which was Gregan's Castle Hotel in Ballyvaughan in Ireland. Uh, and Simon Hayden and Freddie, Freddie McMurray's uh, Georgian Country House has views across the Burren to Galway Bay. It's elegant, it's antique-filled, it uh, has amazing interiors with modern art and fresh flowers, and even a friendly cat might be curled up on one of the armchairs there. Uh, so, so that gives you, you know, a, a real sense of, of some of the characterful, independent hotels that we have in the guide that we gave our Cesars to this year. Do you get to go to all these? Uh, I, inspect, I inspect a few. Not enough. <laughs> the hard part of your job, yeah, is it? Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. Okay, I just want to also ask you about, because um, you also did some recent research amongst the, the hotels uh, that feature in the guide. Um, but the bit that I was, I was keen to understand, uh, and, and this is something that comes up quite a bit you know, in, in the podcast at the moment, naturally, is, is the impact that Brexit might be having on, on their businesses, both now, but also what their thoughts are you know, for the coming months. What, what, what was the kind of response to that? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, we, we didn't, uh, to, to, to be honest, we didn't ask about how they feel about the upcoming months. We just asked them uh, about the performance over the last year yeah. versus prior year. Um, and and, and we, uh, we saw really surprised me. Um, so we went, we went out to all of our hotels and we saw a, a good response, uh, about uh, so, so, so hundreds of our hotels responded to this questionnaire. And 97% of them said that the business was either good or fair, uh, which is really uh, amazing uh, versus prior year. 60% said uh, that they'd seen an increase in foreign guests. And, and two to one, a ratio of two to one, said that the pound, the depreciation of the pound, had in fact helped them, which possibly explains some of that foreign, foreign guest interest. Interestingly... We specifically asked about Brexit and how that had impact, had it helped or hindered staff recruitment and retention. And a ratio of 10 to 1 said that Brexit had hindered versus helped their staff recruitment and retention efforts. Uh, and that's very meaningful and I think does speak to the future, as you were asking about. Yeah. You know, uh, that's really what they're most worried about. There were a couple of other findings that I thought were interesting um, just across the business. 90% uh, of the hotels uh, said that they had an occupancy rate in excess of 50%. Over half of the hotels said they had an occupancy rate which was greater than 70%. Uh, and we were really impressed by, by some of those numbers. Um, and 80% of uh, the people that we went out to said that their occupancy rate was better this year 
than it was last Interesting. year. Interesting, yeah. That's good stuff. Um, okay, and so um, finally, I, th- I think you gave out the URL a little bit earlier, but here's your chance to uh, share with our listeners where they can find all these great hotels to go to. It um, does. What, yeah, it's <laughs> what, an e- what's the address? It's an easy one to remember. It's just goodhotelguide.com. Perfect. Uh, Richard Freeman, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. So joining us now to give us uh, the latest news from the country in the middle of the world is Jose Luis Igas Ramirez, Undersecretary of Markets, Investments and International Relations from the Ministry of Tourism of Ecuador. Welcome to the show, Jose. Thank you very much for the interview. That's a pleasure. Now, um, here at World Travel Market, you are describing your country as having four distinct worlds. Um, so you've the Andes, the coast, the Amazon, and of course, the Galapagos Islands. Um, and you're here with uh, 17 Ecuadorian exhibitors and representatives of mu- uh, municipalities. What kind of things will visitors to your part of the exhibition see here? Well, the first thing is that uh, the thing that you, you just said is that uh, we have uh, four different worlds in, in a very small country, uh, which is uh, over 283,000 uh, square um, kilometers. And then uh, what we can offer is that uh, probably you can have breakfast in the, uh, at the beach and then you can go up uh, four hours driving and you will go up uh, high to the Andes and go to, into Quito. Quito is above uh, 2,800 uh, meters above sea level. You can have lunch there and the, in the night you can stay at the jungle and the Amazon basin. Uh, and you know you can explore these three different uh, regions and have a lot of nature they have a lot of uh, very nice sightseeing uh, very nice views and going from very down from sea level mm. to the other part of the world so that's something uh, makes ecuador a unique place to visit yeah. and then of course uh, we like to to share that galapagos islands has been named since uh, many years, I think from 1978, uh, uh, as a world heritage. So it's uh, also a unique uh, destination where you can find a lot of nature, a lot of animals that uh, they can only be found in Galapagos. Do you think, uh, I mean this is just a personal opinion, but we hear lots about the Galapagos Islands, of course, but do you think people here in the UK know enough about Ecuador as a whole, compared to you know the other Latin American destinations, with you know we're next to you know here at the exhibition we've got Mexico to one side, Brazil you know just next to us. I mean, do, do people in the UK know enough about your country? I don't think uh, it's very well recognized. Needs to be very. Uh, we need to make a, a very communication about our country and what we have. Uh, I don't know if the public knows, but. The first uh, city was named Heritage of the World by UNESCO was Quito. Okay. Uh, so Quito, why was named? Because it's the largest uh, historical city in the whole Latin America. Uh, it was founded in, uh, in the mid-1500s uh, and it's conserved. Uh, there are many monuments and many uh, churches and monasteries that comes from that age so it's very special the the food the heritage uh, the culture the arts that we that people can find uh, are unique and uh, special so like i said we need to communicate better what you can find in ecuador yeah so so on that note then can you tell us a little bit of what the government you know or your government is is doing to improve tourism to the country then yeah, what uh, we know, uh, the best thing or, or the first thing that we need to do is have better connection. So we open the skies in Ecuador. We have a new law that allows any airline to come to Ecuador. We are working with the airports. Uh, we just um, we, we have built new airports in Quito and Guayaquil, international airports that are, are uh, one of the best airports in the entire region. And uh, we have a, a better connection. We just have five new airlines that are coming to Ecuador. So that will help and will develop the tourism to Ecuador. Right. So uh, we also like to say that uh, the government is promoting Ecuador as a love destinations. We have, um, we have a new campaign that Ecuador is love. 
which includes uh, packages that people can come into Ecuador and get married. It's uh, not like you do it in, in the beach, but uh, you know we we have these mountains that where, where we can set up the the weddings for the people or the historical uh, monuments where you can be married there. So it's coming, uh, it's changing that uh, way to, to perceive Ecuador. Fantastic. Um, I, I want to pick up on something. You've been chosen um, by the World Travel Awards as the leading green destination of the world for five consecutive years. It's obviously something you're clearly proud of in a lot of the communications that, you know, that I read that you put out. What have you done to achieve that status? The first thing is the political way to conserve the... The, the the parks that we have the natural parks that we have we have uh, 17 parks in the country uh, very and as the Galapagos Islands is one example of it which is a very large uh, national park that is has a, a maximum amount of passengers that can travel to the to the Galapagos Islands cannot be more than 250,000 passengers per year and you can only visit the 5% of the islands. The rest of the islands and the rest of the territory is conserved and it cannot be visited. Anyways, if we, even though it cannot be visited, the parts of uh, 5% shows a very large portion of what, uh, what the, the Galapagos Islands can offer. Yeah. Same thing is happening with the jungle, with the Amazon Basin. Uh, how we want to work in that? We are working with the natives in the Galapagos in the in, in the uh, Amazon basin. Uh, so, with which in that perspective, we think we are cons uh, we have we are very proud to conserve the nature uh, as it is now as a heritage for the new generations. Excellent. And so um, if listeners want to find out more information about Ecuador and all these different things that you've been talking about, you know, uh, that it has as a, as a travel destination, you know, what it's got to offer, where's the best place for them to, uh, to go? You should go into our website, which is uh, www.ecuador.travel. Uh, you will find a lot of information. Uh, there are many of our tour operators that are in the website. So you can go visit and even buy there your, your next vacation or your next visit to, to Latin America and to Ecuador. Tremendous. Uh, Jose, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and good luck with the, uh, the rest of the exhibition. Well, that wraps up another episode of the C-Suite podcast. So thanks again to all my guests who took the time to uh, chat to us today. Um, if you've got any comments on what's been discussed today or indeed on any of our previous shows, you can join in the discussion on our Facebook page, uh, Twitter feed or LinkedIn page, uh, which are all linked from the top of the website at c-suitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads via SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify, as well as all other podcast platforms. And of course, please do give us a positive rating and review when you do as that helps us climb the business podcast charts uh, finally if you would like to get in touch with the show uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or you can reach me via twitter using at ross goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye